Well, I invite you to turn, if you'd like, to John uh, chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So John chapter 1, we'll uh, read uh, verses 14 down through 18 and consider those same verses. Before we do so, let's, uh, let's pause for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to your word, we thank you for it. We ask that as we study John's account of the good news, this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world, that you would powerfully work in us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, you know what we need. We don't even know what we need. And so we pray that you would uh, just be at work in us to supply our needs and to change us that we might be a people more and more shaped into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, uh, John 1 at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Uh, So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning. Again, this is John's account really of uh, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's unlike Mark's, which is almost non-existence. It's very much unlike Matthew's, which is dealing with uh, 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 prophecies fulfilled. And it's unlike Luke's, which is placing the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ squarely in history and describing a lot of historical events. John has more of a theological, philosophical bent. It's the last of the Gospels written, we're to understand. And it's very reflective. The, The beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, took a long time to reflect upon the truths about our Lord Jesus Christ and he uh, uh, does so uh, in a marvelous way in these verses. And I want us to just kind of dive right in, no fancy outline. We're just going to dive in at beginning at verse 14 and kind of walk our way through it and end with 18, and then we'll sing and, uh, and go home. So I'd like to begin just by looking at uh, uh, the, the first few words in, in John 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh, and just stop really at the first two words, the Word, uh, the Word. There's, uh, the, the word behind this word in your ESV translated word is the, word, the Greek word logos. Uh, there's actually a whole history behind this word logos that was important both to Jews and to Greeks. So when John uses this word logos, he's using a word that is actually filled with meaning. And he's, he's, not, he's not just using the word to import the same meaning to the word, but he's actually going to start redefining this word in a way that would make sense to both Jews and to Greeks who heard him describe the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the Jews, what did Logos mean for the Jews before John writes this prologue? Well, if you were a Jew and you looked at Psalm 33, 6 and read, by the word, or translated in their uh, Bibles, by the Logos of the Lord the heavens were made, you would start to develop a, a theology that really began in Genesis 1 of what the word is. God spoke creation into existence. So for a Jew, the word was what God used. It was almost like a mediatory tool between God and the universe he created uh, through which the entire universe came into being. 
So for them, the word was intimately bound up with God. The, the, the logos was something attached to God and something that really could describe the whole universe. It was like a, a, a divine uh, principle. It was like a, a, a divine reason uh, that, that was attached to God through which the whole world was made. And uh, one of uh, the Jews, uh, uh, preeminent philosophers in the days of Jesus, Philo, uh, kind of uh, gives voice to a full Jewish thought around what is the Logos. And I want to read something of what he wrote. Um, he wrote, The most universal of all things is God, and in the second place, the Word or the Logos of God. The shadow of God is his Word, which he used like an instrument when he was making the world. And then he goes on to write, This same Word is continually a suppliant to the immortal God on behalf of the mortal race, which is exposed to affliction and misery, and is also the ambassador sent by the ruler of all to the subject race. The word is neither being uncreated as God nor yet created as you, but being in the midst between these two extremities. So what Philo is getting at is this, that the word was with God in the beginning and the word sort of acts as a mediator between God and humans. That was their, the Jewish understanding. And he, also, he actually continues uh, to say this. This is the last thing we'll look at with Philo. As then the city, so think of a city being built or uh, the civil engineers are, are designing a city that's not yet built. The city which was fashioned beforehand within the mind of the architect held no place in the outer world, but it had been imprinted on the soul of the craftsman as by a seal. Even so, the world that consists of the ideas would have no other location than the divine reason or the divine logos, which was the author of the physical world. So the divine logos, which is responsible for bringing the entire world into existence, uh, uh, and can explain all of the meaning, that divine logos uh, it, it is, is really in, in God's mind, as it were. It, it's, his, it's his reason. It, it's it, it's uh, divine reason. So if we're going to figure out uh, in the mind of a Jew, uh, uh, what does this world have to do with? We're going to have to go to the logos, the word, God's word. It's, it's the way by which he made and created uh, everything. To the Greeks, we could, it, there's actually a Logos theory that begins with Heraclitus around like the 6th century BC, and it developed as well uh, so that the Greeks understood, they believed that the Logos was the mind and the power behind the universe. And a lot of philosophy was trying to figure out what is this Logos? Because if we finally find it, we can then discover uh, how the universe came into being uh, and what it is we're doing here. Why, what it is we're supposed to be doing. In other words, we can, we can figure out an explanation for the entire universe if we can discover the Logos. What the Greeks understood is there must have been some force, some divine force at the beginning of all creation that brought the world into existence. And if only we can discover what that is, we can now define reality. We can discover why we're here, where we came from, and where it is that we're heading to. And some actually posited that fire, it had something to do with fire, that, that the Logos was, could be defined by fire. Now, you take both of these worlds, the Jewish world of thought regarding the Logos, the Greek world of thought regarding the Logos, both of which worlds understood that in order to understand creation, we have to understand the Logos, the Word. We have to understand the reasoning principle behind everything. You take all that information, all, the, all those histories and centuries of trying to figure this out, and then you start in the beginning of John's gospel, and he has the audacity to say this, in the beginning was the word. Okay, that's Genesis 1-1 language. In the beginning was the word. Not the word was created after, but in the beginning was the word. So before creation ever came into existence, the word was already there. 
So the word's eternal. Then the word has a relationship with God. The word was with God. Okay? Again, uh, nothing mind-blowing here at this point yet. But then he says the word is God. The word was God. And then goes on to say, the word is responsible for all creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So again, people are thinking, yeah, of course that's the case. Jews and Greeks are both saying, yeah, this makes sense regarding the word. Uh, that that the, everything was made through the word, and everything therefore makes sense when we discover uh, who the word is. In just a moment, we're going to look at how John kind of blew the doors off both, both trains of thought. Before we get there, I want to just pause for a second and, and, and mention this. We're still trying to figure these, out, these things out in our day, beloved. Society still is. We have logos theories, but they're not dealing with the word logos anymore. Our theories are, you know, the, the, the world's greatest minds, the greatest scientists are still trying to figure out, was there anything behind the Big Bang? Was there, a, was there a, a force? Was there something behind the Big Bang? What brought this matter into existence? What, what's the beginning of our beginning? How did human beings come into this world? What does this look like? We're still trying to figure this out, and people are still trying to discover this, beloved. This is not anything new. They were in Jesus' day. They were in John's day. They're still doing it in our day. And some people have posited this whole notion of intelligent design, Christians and non-Christians. Well, there must be an intelligent designer. If only we can understand who this designer is, then we can explain the universe. So what the Jews are wrestling with and the Greeks are wrestling with, we're still wrestling this with, this, with today on a, on a cosmic worldwide scope. Uh, who is the Logos? And what Christianity is saying is this. If you want to understand the entire universe, if you want to know where we've come from, why we're here and where we're going, then you have to know Jesus Christ. He's the it factor. He's the Logos. He's the one. And if you know him, the person, the Logos, then everything can start falling into place and making sense. That's, that's the big claim that John is making indirectly. Well, not very indirectly, pretty directly uh, uh, in his day. And the claim is still valid in our day. And then here's where he blows everybody's doors off. This word became flesh. This, this principle, this reason, this intelligence, this force out there that everybody's agreeing, yep, this exists somewhere. We just don't know what it is. This word became flesh. So the governing principle of the universe took on skin, hair follicles, a brain, had a skull, a big toe, a pinky finger, elbows, had every joint in his body, had every limb on his body, had all the digits there, had all the organs of an ordinary human being, took on flesh in every way. Uh, this, this is really mind-blowing when you think about it. What, what took place when the Word became flesh? What John is saying is this, you want to you know the answer to all the universal questions in the world. You want to know why we're here, all the big philosophical questions. You go to this enfleshment of the word, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it can begin in a manger. And he's not going to the manger, but that's where it begins. You go to the feeding trough, and there you've got the answer to all of life's questions. Uh, amazing what, what, what the Apostle John is saying here. You know, one of the early Christian heresies was... Uh, Docetism or Gnosticism, that Jesus Christ seemed uh, like he was real, like he really had a body, that his disciples thought they saw him in body, but that really he was uh, just something ethereal and didn't really have flesh. And what the passage like this does, the word became flesh, uh, what it does is just destroys the possibility that that heresy can exist inside of Christianity. When the Lord, what John is saying here, beloved, is that the Lord Jesus Christ was someone you could touch 
He was someone you could behold. In fact, the Apostle John never even really got over this. In 1 John 1, 1 to 4, he said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. (laughs) He's so excited that the word became flesh that when he starts his own epistle, not the gospel, but his epistle, he's saying, look, we were there. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. We, we, we also want you to have fellowship with us because we've seen him and want your joy to be complete by knowing him. In other words, John's, there's no way around this, beloved, that when, the, when Christmas happened, God became man, God became flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself real flesh and, and legend, as it were, philosophical legend that had previously been undiscovered. And, 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 and had not been determined. Nobody had arrived at a conclusion about the Logos. That legend became reality. The Lord Jesus Christ became reality. You know, it's something interesting. When legend meets reality, there's almost always disappointment, right? If you, uh, uh, legend dies, as it were, a celebrity. You know, I don't know who you're, who's your favorite actor or actress. Who's your favorite politician? You know, we can sometimes put them in, in legend, right? If only I could meet so-and-so, this would be amazing. And then when legend meets reality, if you stay around the legend long enough, the reality of it, you'll be disappointed, right? You'll, you'll say, well, you know, they, they smell, they, they have bad moods, you know, they, they pick their nose. Uh, when legends become reality, beloved, there's always a measure of disappointment in this world. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene, the opposite was true. This legend, this logos, showed up and became reality. And the Apostle John, who said, as it were, I was with him for three years nonstop. I've seen him, I've heard him, and I've touched him, and my joy isn't going to be complete until I tell you all about him. When legend became reality, people's doors were blown off when Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and people were excited about it. The, The apostles, the disciples were excited about it, could hardly contain their joy. When Jesus became reality, he was better than the legend. Well, I'd like to just continue here. He tabernacled among us. So he didn't just become flesh, but actually tabernacled among us in verse 14. And again, this is language that's just rife with Old Testament background. Uh, why, is, why is the Lord Jesus Christ tabernacling among us so significant or uh, dwelling among us? Uh, because remember, God dwelling with man actually began in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam, the Lord walked with, with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And when the Lord had, uh, was on his routine walk coming in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve had sinned, uh, were, given to told, were given to understand, and it, where we know from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had sinned, fallen into sin, and they made fig leaves and they hid because they knew God's showing up. He's going to come and walk with us and dwell with us, and there's something wrong with us now. So dwelling with God began in the Garden of Eden, where we had fellowship with him. We, we, he, he was tabernacling with them, and then it was lost when God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden cherubim with flaming swords guarding the door now. And the Lord's basically saying this, you can't come back in here. You can't dwell with me the same way that you used to dwell with me anymore. The, the, if, you, if you try to come back in here, you'll be killed. And so the entrance back into God's dwelling presence is lost. But then we get these small pictures of how we can dwell with God coming, especially in the tabernacle. The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and the Lord says, you're going to build a tabernacle and I'm going to be in the most holy place right above the mercy seat. That's where I'm going to be dwelling. And only one person once a year to can, can come in. So again, that's not close, intimate fellowship, is it? And then a temple was built, and God said, I'm going to dwell right above that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. The high priest can come in once, once a year and only one person. And it's not a great time either, right? He's scared for his life. If I do something wrong, I'm not making it out of here. So fellowship with God is, is hurt 
God dwelling with us is, is something we all crave and want, but we can't figure out how to get it, how to attain it. And yet at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21 verse 3, we're told that God's dwelling is with men. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So, so something drastic has changed between the temple and, and heaven. Something drastic has changed between first century before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, Herod's second temple that he rebuilt, and the Lord and, and heaven when we get there, because in one instance, one person can only go in to dwell with God once a year, and it's not a great time. But in Revelation 21, 3, all of God's people are dwelling with him, and it's incredible. Everybody's having a great time. There's no more tears, no more pain, nothing, no more death. Crying will be no more. Beloved, something incredible has happened, and what we're told is that what's happened in between is John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The change is that the Lord Jesus Christ came to dwell with us. But when he came to dwell, something astonishing happened. You know, if you're going to dwell with people, and you're going to tabernacle with them, and you're going to put up a tent and live in that tent with them, you're going to be really careful who you do it with, Right? You're not going to build a spare bedroom off the back of your house and say, yeah, I'm trying to find a place. You know, Osama bin Laden was homeless, you know, before he died, or Al Capone was homeless. I, I just really thought they could use a place to live, and so we're going to invite them into our home. Nobody in their right mind would do that. People like that, would be, we'd prefer they be in jail or locked up or in the grave. And yet, here's what took place. God decided to dwell with his enemies, the Lord Jesus Christ came down here to tabernacle among people that wanted to kill him. Couldn't stand his guts. Then when they heard prophecies, uh, as in Luke 4, that he's saying are fulfilled in him, they want to throw him off a cliff. They want to stone him. And eventually they finally get their way and they crucify him. God came to dwell in the midst of that. This is so unlike anything that we've ever seen before. You and I would never have tabernacle. You don't tabernacle by your enemies. You don't dwell with your enemies. They'll kill you. You stay away from your enemies. You try and preserve your life. And the Lord Jesus Christ tabernacled with people who rejected him, as John has, has been saying, who didn't know him and who ultimately came uh, to crucify him. That's an incredible gift at Christmas, beloved. That the Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of the rejection he knew would come, in spite of the crucifixion which he knew was coming his way, he tabernacled among us anyways. He came so close that we could actually get our hands around his neck, put him on a tree, pound spikes in his hands and, and legs. He came that close that we could do that to him. And then when we did it, he let us do it when he had 12 legions of angels and he didn't let it stop. In fact, he let it keep on going. He did everything to make sure it could keep on going so that we could be redeemed. God dwelling with us. Amazing, fascinating. What love, what love. Then John goes on to write uh, grace upon grace, verses 16 and 17. I want you to draw your attention to those. From his fullness... We have all received uh, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So uh, the, if you look at the language in verse 16, and from his fullness, we have all received. It's actually a reference back to verse 14. So verse 15 regarding John's testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's greater than me because he came before me. Again, a reference to Jesus' eternity. John understood that he was eternal and John the Baptist wasn't. Uh, the word fullness doesn't refer back to John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, but refers back to four, verse 14 regarding the word full of grace and truth. 
So the word is full of great, full of grace and truth. And from that word's fullness, we have received grace upon grace. So the fullness here spoken of is the fullness of Jesus Christ, the fullness of the word. And what that fullness has overspilled or overflowed to us is grace upon grace. Uh, everyone's filled with something, right? If you, if you spend enough time around another person or another human being, you're going to find out that they're filled with something. We're filled with joy overflowing. We're filled with sorrow. We're filled with sadness. We're filled with love of things. We start to find out what somebody's filled with just by being around them. Uh, we, we ooze things, right? I remember Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, prick him anywhere, his blood is blind. John Bunyan, you cut him, and he just, he's so full of the Bible. <laughs> Whenever he speaks a sentence, he just starts quoting scripture. Again, we're all filled with something, beloved. And what John is telling us here is that God is full to the brim. The Lord Jesus Christ is full to the brim of grace. In fact, the language is actually, it's grace upon grace or grace instead of grace, which, which is fascinating, almost like this. If you don't like grace, well, the Lord will take grace back and then instead he'll put more grace. <laughs> and if you don't like that, then he'll give more grace instead of that grace. And it's grace upon grace that we've seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God loves us. It's how he cares for us. In other words, his grace is never old. It's constantly being replenished every single day. And, it's, uh, and God is acting toward us in grace every single day whenever we sin. I want to pause here and just stop. For some of us, uh, we might fall into the trap of thinking that God's grace has been and will be abundantly applied to certain situations, but that there's the possibility where we can be so stubborn in our sin and we can be uh, so recurrent in our sin that God says, you know what, I've given you grace for this many years, but I'm, I'm done now. Like, there was grace for that circumstance and that one, but, but not here. Like the grace, does, grace, where sin abounded here, that's fine, but grace didn't abound much more, Romans 5. It's possible for us to actually believe it and to think it so that we start to think um, underneath the conviction of sin. You know what? I can understand God's grace to a certain extent, but, but not grace upon grace. In other words, I can understand that God will forgive some of the things I've done, but not all of them. And what John's telling us is that as far as the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned, we're forgiven of all of our sins. But maybe we can't come to grips with it because underneath that, we're really saying, Lord, I can understand why you would forgive me for certain things because they're not that bad. But I'm better than to have committed those. So there's no way you can forgive me because I can't forgive myself because I'm really better than this. There's no way, I, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. God's grace can't forgive it because I can't forgive myself because I shouldn't have done it. So what's underneath our rejection of God's grace upon grace toward us in Christ is oftentimes pride masqueraded as humility whereby we're saying, I, I'm better than this. There's no way I should have done it. And I'd ask you, I hope you'd ask me if I was in that situation too. Really? We really believe that we're better than that. It, is that really where our hearts are? Because if that's the case, that, that's a bad spot to be in. In other words, if, if we can't accept God's grace in our lives, if we can't have God's grace cover even the worst of our sins, what we might really be saying is, Lord, I, didn't, I never thought I needed your grace for this much. I don't. I should be able to handle this. And what the Lord is saying in grace upon grace is, I already know you can't handle it. Uh, I know how bad you are more than you know how bad you are. I know how wicked your heart is, how sinful your heart is 
ways more so than you. That's why I'm giving you grace upon grace to cover everything. So I don't know where you are with this. I don't, I don't know if, if it's hard for you to grasp as it's hard for me to grasp that God can be this gracious, beloved. But look what he's done in Jesus Christ. He gives us grace after grace after grace. It's like, it's like waves on a beach. Grace comes in. Well, maybe that's it. No, there's another wave right behind it. Two seconds later, five seconds later, 10 seconds. Sometimes it's a tidal wave, but there's always waves after it. Grace upon grace. That's how God treats us, beloved, as his children. I, I invite you to grasp that, to love it, that this is what God has, has given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then John goes on to say something in addition to this, uh, grace upon grace, but then he says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now you might say, wait a minute, <laughs> thought it was grace upon grace, and now he's throwing in this word truth. What does this have to do with grace? Isn't truth kind of the opposite of grace? And what John is saying is this, when, when God revealed the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, well, what, what we've discovered is that God's relationship with us is one built, in, it's built on grace and more grace and more grace. And if you want to know what that means, it means it involves grace and truth both of those things. You see, sometimes on one side we can say, look, I'm too proud to accept God's grace. Just give me the truth. Lord, let me have it. Just stick it to me. What we're really saying is, yeah, I'm good enough to follow that. You just rebuke me a little bit. That'll jumpstart me and off I go and I'll be good to go. I don't really need God's grace. I just need a jumpstart. That person has to come to grips with forgiveness, with God's grace and with how much they need it. Because we don't need a jumpstart. We need forgiveness because we're all failing. And we really are that bad. We're worse than we, we really thought. None of us thinks low enough of ourselves. None of us has ever come, no human being in the history of the Lord, not even the holiest believer has um, ever come to grips with just how sinful we are. But on the other side, beloved, what we can sometimes say is, well, yeah, God gives us grace, you know, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. On we go, right? Great. And John tells us when Jesus Christ came, what was revealed to us was grace and truth. So they both go together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what some of us need, grace upon grace also involves God's truth. Not just the gift, but also the truth that the gift brings. Well, what's the truth about us? Well, that we're broken, right? That we have sin that we really need to be repenting of. That we're, that we're failures. And we need that truth to come in. That's part of God's grace. One of the most gracious things that God can do, Jesus Christ was doing it all through his ministry. Watch how often when sinners repent, he doesn't say, oh, you're not that bad. Does it ever happen? People come to him and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sinful, I've blown it. The woman caught in adultery, is she sitting there saying, well, no, I'm actually not that bad, let me explain. No, she just stands there red-faced. The Lord Jesus Christ does, ne- does not say, well, actually, you're not that bad. Let me re-explain things. Now, when people come to grips with their sin, the Lord Jesus Christ lets them sit there. In, in other words, says, yep, that's exactly right, you're that sinful. The truth, beloved, is what we need as well. That's part of God's grace upon grace. It involves truth. So sometimes one of the most gracious things God does to us is this. Uh, through, his, through his word, through a sermon, through a Bible study with friends or, or with, uh, with, with fellow church members or through our spouse or through our kids or through somebody, God comes to us and actually convinces us just how far off the rails we are. And that's his grace upon grace. Isn't that amazing? that God's grace to us also involves the truth. One of the greatest things God does is say, hey, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to, I'm trying to let you know that things are just, things are horrible. 
that, that you're not going the direction I want you to go, that you're not being conformed to the image of my son like I want you to be. I've been trying to discipline and chastise you and I'm going to up the ante a little bit. And he walks into our life with truth. And sometimes we can say that's so horrible of God, that's so mean. But it's actually God's grace, beloved. God loves us so much, he's not going to let us keep going down these rails. Imagine a doctor, if you would. The doctor finds out our appendix. We go into the, the, the ER. Something's really hurt. The doctor discovers, yeah, your appendix is about to burst. I don't know any details about an appendectomy or anything about an appendix, but uh, I'm thinking from children's books. Your appendix is about to burst. The doctor knows this. And he says, well, I don't want to ruin their day. So he comes out to the waiting room and says, yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, uh, you can go in peace. I, I'm sure the pain will subside and off you go. Uh, what words will we use to describe that doctor? Probably words like cruel, mean, heartless. Like why not, why not tell him the diagnosis and then also tell him the cure? What, that, that, was, that was horrible. We would never say, well, that doctor is really gracious. That was incredibly gracious. Look, he didn't hurt the patient's feelings at all. But well, some of us have that view of God sometimes. We're sick. We've got sin that is just horrible. We're destroying our relationship with God. We are destroying other people. And yet we want the Lord to say, everything's fine. We want other people around us to say, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And the Lord in his grace breaks right through that and says, you know, I love you enough to tell you that everything's actually a wreck. Everything's not fine. Like here's sin that needs to be repented of. And that's his grace in, in our lives. So beloved, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, you see it all throughout his earthly ministry, extending grace to people who needed it and also just telling people the, the, the naked truth when it was as hard as can be. And again, that's God's grace. So I don't know how this is operating in, in your life as well, beloved, but, but we're gonna see it operate, that as we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ more and more, we're gonna see that God's grace to us involves the truth. And the truth sometimes is hard to swallow but it doesn't mean it's mean. And it's not from a God who's out to get us like a, like a, like a judge, a criminal. It's, it's from a God who loves us like a father does his son or daughter. Well, then the last thing I'd like us to look at is in verse 18, uh, God revealed, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known, or literally he has exegeted him like we would a Bible passage. So we talk about exegeting Bible passage, which is pulling the meaning out of them or explaining the meaning of. You, you take things X out of a Bible passage and lay them before people. What John is telling us is that Jesus Christ has exegeted God. He's made him known. He's explained him. Again, this is really profound. This is something that is so profound, the disciples had a hard time believing it. Remember John 14, Philip said to Jesus in verse eight, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. <laughs> We're just, Jesus, we see you, we've heard what you're saying, but we just, just show us the Father and then we'll take your word for things. And Jesus said, uh, have I been with you so long and yet you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. In other words, if we want to know God and if we want to know who God is, we look at G the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, at the heart of Christianity is God. He's at the heart of Christianity. If you, if you want to know what is Christianity about, the first thing we know is, well, who is God? What's he like? And when we, if we want to know who God is, where can we start to learn about God? The Lord Jesus Christ. Or where can you learn about him? You know, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're seeing God at work. What does God think of poor people, sick people, weak people? Well, how does Jesus treat them? 
What does God think of the proud, the religious hypocrites? How holy is God? How glorious is he, Mount of Transfiguration? How will we feel in his presence? Peter, get away from me, Lord, from a sinful man. As if we want to know God and discover who he is, we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there we're seeing God. We're learning about God the Father, and because he's being exegeted, God is being exegeted through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we can read the epistles, right? Uh, the, the life of Jesus explained. <laughs> Everything that we didn't catch by reading the Gospels and reading the Old Testament. Jesus uh, had a seminary crash course for all of his disciples. He said, before I ascend, you've got them some things to learn. And then he taught them and the Holy Spirit moved them to write. Everything we need to know about the Lord Jesus Christ that we couldn't discover in the Gospels is now explained in the epistles. When we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, we're learning about God himself. Jesus is the revelation of God. So let me just conclude with this, kind of backtracking to the word logos again. If we want to understand the universe in which we're living, we want to know where we've come from, why each of us this very day is alive, and every one of us in this room I think is alive, why it is that God will give us life tomorrow morning, what it is that we're supposed to be doing, and where in the world all of this is heading, then we need to know Jesus Christ. We know Him, the Logos, then through Him, we can discover all sorts of knowledge, all sorts of things. It doesn't mean we'll have an answer to every one of our questions, but it does mean that we'll have an answer to the big questions in life. The questions that minds that are 10 times smarter than probably the smartest person in this room are still trying to figure out and discover and haven't discovered yet. Knowing Christ, beloved, means that foolish people like you and me can actually become really wise just by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ because we know that in Him, we're co-heirs with Him. That in Him, we can have eternal life. That we know that in Him, all things were made so that we came from Him. We came from God. We were spoken into existence. We can know that we're given to live on this earth to glorify God. That we exist for something bigger than ourselves and there's fulfillment. There's joy, right? Not self-fulfillment, but service to others. Not, not love of self, but love of God. There's joy. People are starving to find joy, beloved, especially at this time of year. Where can I find joy? Time off, vacations, family, tons of food, gaining weight, new fitness programs, right? It's a circle every year. And as Christians, not smart people, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, we know where joy can be found. Why? How can we be joyful? Ah, God loved me so much, he came and died for me so that I wouldn't have to go to eternal destruction, but can have eternal life forever. And it's coming pretty soon. It'll be great. It'll be the greatest party in the world, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Beloved, you and I are heading toward that. Love it, cherish it, and just press into the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.